Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, as a teen, people said her house was possessed by spirits. As a young mother, they say she killed her daughter. Were either things true? We'll talk about the Hulu series, Demons and Saviors. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hey, Laura. Hey, and now I'm an avid hiker. Well, not really. I've done one hike now. So. How, how do you define avid? One. I, once. I, I did, I did one once. hike and a half hike. Okay. <laughs> I'm a cookie addict. I had one. <laughs> I'm definitely a cookie addict. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon deep dive book club podcast, Toby Ball. Hey, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So, Kevin, this is obviously a brand new episode of Crime Writers. It's obvious to us all. Uh, What is coming up on our next program? So, on Thursday, we've got another CWO classic. In this rewind, we're looking at the classic documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. All right. And then then what? Then on Monday, we're going to be doing a new review. It's for the new Leon Nafok Audible Originals podcast. It's the next season of Fiasco. It's called Fiasco Vigilante. All right. And we are like coming pretty soon to the end of our summer schedule, right? Yeah, just yeah. a couple more and then we're done. And then it's back to school. Back to school time. Oh, speaking of which, if you are on How's that our, for a transition? Very good, Kevin. I'm very proud of you. If you are a member of our Crime Raiders on Facebook group, which is free and available to anyone who wants to join, all you have to do is go to look for Crime Raiders on podcast on Facebook, go to our regular Facebook page, hit join the group. I think I have a pinned post there. You hit join the group. You got to answer a question. Literally, if you can name any of us, any of the four of us, we'll let you in. <laughs> uh, if you're a teacher... And you have an Amazon wish list for your classroom, you can post it in our group. I have a post there for it. And members of our community will buy stuff from your Amazon teacher's wish list. We did this last year and members of our community really stepped up. And I personally, earmuffs, Kevin, bought something and will buy something from one 
of each of your lists. I mean, it might be a like a little small something, depending on how many lists there are. <laughs> but the teachers have already posted so far. I posted it today. I have bought one thing from each of their lists, and I promise to keep doing so. So please, teachers, join. If you're a listener to the podcast, join our Facebook group. Post your Amazon wish list or post your classroom needs if you're not allowed to have wish lists in your particular school. People in our community love teachers and want to support them, and it's a really great way we love using our platform to help you guys. You are frontline workers now, and we want to support you. Now, moms and dads, this isn't for you to post your kids' teachers list. Nope. This is just for the teachers who are listeners for Crime Writers on to help them out that way. Yes, right. So don't like post your, you know, cousin's brother's sister who's a teacher. Like if you are a teacher. Yeah. And you listen to this podcast. We want to help you. Not because we don't want to help all teachers, but because we want to keep it like, you know, manageable. There's only so much of us to go around. <laughs> and also Kevin will kill me if I start buying <laughs> one thing from like 10 million people's teachers list. Anyway, please, please join our group. And um, if you're a teacher and we'd love to help you out. All right. So, Kevin, we have stuff that we need to talk about. And it's uh, it's pretty feisty stuff. So we get to well, it. Let's do it. Well, yeah, I want to get to it. I want to see some stuff fly across the room. I think we should get to it. Should we yeah. drop that first clip right now? Don't drop it. Let it levitate. Let it fly. I'm going to knock that over right now. Joan and John Risch were freaked out about it. And being religious, that framework said, this is demonic. And they began to believe that she was possessed by spirit. Teenager Tina Resch made news in the 1980s with stories of supernatural disturbances in her Ohio home. The so-called poltergeist girl was the focus of academics who wanted to research her powers and skeptics who believed the whole thing was an act. So the two options always available in 1984, this is a strange supernatural experience or this is fake. As an adult, now going by Christina Boyer, the young mother returned from work to find her three-year-old Amber fatally injured while in the care of her boyfriend. Though she maintained her innocence, Boyer accepted a life plea to avoid the death penalty. The DA and the judge kept saying, are you pleading guilty? And I said, yes, but I didn't do this. I signed the paper, but I'm innocent. After three decades in prison, a group of Georgetown students dug into Boyer's case, looking to expose a miscarriage of justice. Despite questions about the evidence used to convict her, officials remained unshaken the mother is deceptive and guilty of murder. You know, whether or not uh, a bunch of students at Georgetown University think it's unfair, that doesn't faze me at all. I don't care what they think. The Hulu series Demons and Saviors from ABC News Studios digs into Boyer's paranormal origin story, the circumstances around Amber's death, and the effort to win her release. What role did her supernatural fame play in her prosecution? And can she find justice when authorities feel in the absence of solid evidence she's still criminally responsible just because the victim was her child? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Demons and Saviors, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. So, when I started watching this show, I turned to Kevin and said, are we just watching a recap of an old Unsolved Mysteries episode? Did I not, Kevin? You did. Because it felt like, did it not, a recap of an Unsolved Mysteries episode? Well, there was literally Unsolved Mysteries in the show, so yeah. 
Yeah. The first episode of this show is bonkers. Toby, what did you think when you started watching the first episode of this show? Yeah, it's just kind of a disaster. Like, it's clear that there's nothing going on. Like, there's never anybody who sees anything who's not either her or her family. Like, all the stories you get from people are, you know, we've waited around for a while, nothing happened. And it's right as we were leaving to go. Like, suddenly we heard this crash and we looked over and some forks were on the floor. <laughs> or, you know, they'll be like, they'll set up a camera and the stuff will happen off camera. Or eventually they get this guy, James Randi, who's like a, a magician who goes around and sort of exposes people <laughs> and they hang out for freaking nine hours and nothing happens. And then when they get up to leave and they're out of the room, she like knocks over a lamp, but it turns out they still had their cameras going. What Christina Resch did not know was the cameras were still recording and they very clearly caught her grabbing the lamp and knocking it over. You know, it's pretty clear that there, there's nothing actually sort of paranormal happening. And what you're really watching is a, is a girl who's sort of isolated and being abused. Like they talk to somebody who's a friend with hers in high school and they talk about how she was sort of desperate for attention and for like personal connection. You hear about the abuse, both sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental and emotional abuse that she was getting at home. So the whole thing, it seemed to be about one thing. I think it was actually about another, the whole idea that there was actually something to it. I mean, a guy who's supposedly investigating her takes her off to his research institute and then sends her right back because obviously nothing happened. Like if something had been happening in his research institute, he would have kept her. So, I mean, that was kind of my, my takeaway, but it takes you like 50 minutes or something to get to this, yeah. which could have been done like 15, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Laura, did we, did we need a whole episode about the poltergeist girl aspect of this story? No, I don't think so. Because I think the problem with this, so, and I will say, I felt guilty because I was like, oh God, I'm the one who recommended this. Because I saw a preview segment of these law school students that we'll talk about later on Good Morning America. I was like, oh, that sounds like a cool initiative. And they're in this new documentary. I didn't realize that there was going to be this long drawn out thing about the poltergeist girl. And I, I honestly feel like there was like two different stories here. And the story that I think was actually interesting was about this, you know, clinic at the law school where you've got the exoneree who's become a lawyer and who's a professor along with the other lawyer who's a professor and these students who decide to take on her case after she's been serving this very long sentence for the death of her daughter. Yes, obviously it's prejudicial, all of this um, poltergeist background. And, and, and that's why I think they put all of that in because of how she was treated in the court process and in the sort of court of public opinion when her daughter was you know, found dead. They're like, oh, it's the poltergeist girl. Well, we could have gotten that information in a whole different way without having an entire episode devoted to that story because the flow, it just was so fucking slow. I almost couldn't watch it. And I was like, where's the like wrongful conviction part of this? I, I, it's not that I don't care about the poltergeist part, but I just think there was another way to incorporate that information into the narrative that would have been more impactful. I'm not sure that that is why it was so long. This is the whole thing. I didn't know any context about this when I started watching it and no one else will either because this is just a thing that's on Hulu and they'll just hit play, right? And when you start watching this, Kevin, like, what were your feelings 
when you started watching this episode? Like, what did you actually think you were watching when you started watching this? Well, this I said, yeah, I mean, like, when I started watching this, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a real stinker and we're going to dunk on it. Maybe we still will. Although, I, at the end, there were parts when I'm like, okay, there's a little something here that could be made into something, and this seems really interesting. But I think when you start off, like the very first thing, it's the whole reenactment, like, I'm going to unplug the TV and it's still on. And it just gets crazy. I feel like that the structure of this, they could have really changed these three acts and moved them around and, you know, made this like how I would have done it. I would have started with a little bit, an opener with the Georgetown students. Yes. To say like, oh, to let everybody know there's something at stake. You know, the documentary is going to be Moving forward with real-time events, it's not just going to be a looking back and, and recapping what happened. You know, we know, we understand it, basically that there was a crime, but I don't ever get the sense from early on that what the crime is or, or how it's connected, you know, to the supernatural thing. I think that for people who are tuning in because they see the promos and they think this is a supernatural story... They're going to be really disappointed. And if you're tuning in looking for a true crime story, you don't you don't really get that to at least two thirds of the way through. Well, maybe one third of the way through. And if you're looking for the exoneration story, you don't get that till two thirds of the way. That's through. right. So I would have what I how I would have structured it and maybe take I'm going to say I would do, you know, the script exactly the same. But no. You would not. It's terrible. I would start with the Georgetown students. I would establish that there's this, they're looking into this. Then I would go to the trial. I go to the crime, her, her adult life. What happened? And that would be the first episode. And it ends with, why are they so doubtful? Doubtful of her. Yes. And then the second one is this whole poltergeist story, oh, this shit. whole side story. Because it turns out the reason they think she's a liar is because, cut to cliffhanger. Girl knocking over a lamp. She was the poltergeist girl. And you're like, what? Yeah, that would have been so much more impactful. If you're doing a story about um, a murderer who, when he was a kid, was the balloon boy. You got to in include that. What's the balloon boy? Remember the, the kids like, oh, he's lost in a hot air balloon and they're chasing the hot air balloon. He wasn't. In, he was hiding dad's a. Uh, oh, really? the whole time you don't remember that I don't story think I know that yeah. story oh you know that story but I mean if, if that's that's a significant Kevin, part I didn't of have TV I don't know that story oh that's it's right. like early 90s I think yeah if um you know that's a significant part of their their background their large is a beer from camera she's definitely googling balloon she's googling boy. it right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know balloon boy no I'm here I'm but here. yeah but it's like you don't along the way I'm like that part's interesting maybe they should flush that out more the idea that like maybe this girl was spirited away to this weird institute like I'm like okay there's a kernel of something there maybe if they worked on that that might be more interesting than you know I felt like at first they were going to try to get us to buy into this whole sort of baby Gabriel idea that oh she was really had superpowers and we're going to listen to this and like I'm at home going to be rolling my eyes saying why the fuck are you telling me this because you're full of shit. And, you know, because, oh, of course, here comes the here comes the medium who's going to come in and say, oh, there's strange things there. Carol Ann! But then eventually he says, you know, that no, there, there wasn't anything happening there. And, and everybody kind of says, yeah, no, this was fake. And, and, like, that actually added credibility to the whole thing to me when they just said, nope, that wasn't what was going on. But here's what's so fucking stupid about it. They wasted our time explaining to us what a poltergeist was. They wasted. I no, I know it was a waste. I'm sorry. They wasted our time actually laying out the elements of like 
here are the reasons why like this is what like like telekinesis is. Here's what a poltergeist is. Here's all of the credit. You didn't have to do any of that, like actually trying to lay out a case for the uh, credibility of her like telekinetic poltergeist abilities. That was a huge fucking waste of our time. If the conclusion is she was an abused kid whose parents used her and like made up this story so that like or or somehow they were like benefiting from it or whatever the fuck was going on, like just get to that. Don't like waste our time with explaining to us the pros and cons of her potentially being yes or no and like showing us potential good evidence for it and then showing us people who are doubtful of it and then explaining to us, well, a poltergeist is a German ghost who haunts children. Like what the actual fuck did they spend that time doing that for? It's It was wildly problematic for me. Toby, you're staring at me like you have something very critical to say about this. We're on Zoom. I'm not. I'm not staring at you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, you. You're poltergeisting her, Toby. I mean, I think the only thing that about that story uh, to me that could have been, you know, sort of resonant is the idea that this this girl who's like reaching out for something outside of her family is just attracts these people who are just there to exploit her for something that I assume that they don't even really believe. Right? It's just. She's like becomes part of the circus. And to me, that seems kind of tragic, you know, like you're, you're kind of throwing out signals that you want to be rescued. And the people who show up are just these like weirdos and charlatans and they kind of give her 15 minutes and then, you know, they send her back. That was like a 10 or 15 minute little segment that went on for a whole freaking episode and they didn't even like, you don't come away with what I think is important about that in her life. You come away with a, wow, that's kind of weird. And then she kind of moves on to things. So, yeah. I mean, as Kevin pointed out in his notes, they do recreations of unsolved mystery recreations. Yes. <laughs> we see the it's clips ludicrous. from the original unsolved mystery show. And then with their recreations, they're dressed like the actors in the Unsolved Mysteries recreations. Yes. It's like so meta. <laughs> yes. It'd be like me saying, okay, we're going to do a segment in the business section where we're just going to talk about how we're going to get people to listen to the business section. Yes. So, should, Kevin, should we just cut to the business section then? See, I'm already in the business oh, section. I'm already so like working three levels below, man. It's in set business sectioning. Yes. Yes. It's incredible. Right now, if you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you can listen to the 200th Crime Writers on After Show. Wowzers. In the 200th edition, Laura is going to be talking about her most recent trip to the Green Mountain State, Vermont. Yeah, and I'm just going to say there were some things in Vermont that weren't there the last time, like take and bake cookies. Take and bake? Yes. Take and bake just cookies. Leave it you take and then you bake. Just okay. leave it. All right, we'll leave it right there. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what that means. I'm taking bake. Oh, all right. Um, Kevin's so adorable. I'm adorable. We're literally oh, about to go to fly to Denver, and he's going to be like, "What's that store with the leaf on the door?" 
<laughs> oh man, are they so Is that plants? A shamrock? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of nurseries in Denver. <laughs> I'm gonna turn into Bill Rankin and be like, "Wow, look at all those people. They look so happy. <laughs> they look so calm. They look so calm. They're, they're eating cookies. Why are they eating so many cookies? Can I have some of your brownie?" <laughs> um, Toby, Toby is doing a, a new episode of. Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. He had a, a recent discussion about a, a book about journalism and a great journalistic panel. Tell us about that, Toby. Yeah, it's from a, it's a book called In the Mouth of the Wolf, which is uh, about a sort of crusading journalist who's murdered. Mm-hmm. She investigates like everything in the in the Mexican city of Veracruz, uh, but it's this very you know harrowing story, which which ends up in her death. But I had a great panel of journalists. Meg Heckman, Simone Paget, and Maggie Freeling. We had a really interesting discussion. It was it was great getting their kind of perspective, both on the book and about sort of the issues facing journalists in in the U.S. and to I guess a lesser extent Canada in this sort of new atmosphere of distrust towards journalists that that's kind of been fomented in the last seven or eight years. Hmm. So we also have uh, episodes of. Married with Podcasts and Laura's Leave It to Bricker podcast. We have some news for those folks who uh, are on Patreon that right now Patreon is syncing their content with Spotify. It's so, about freaking time. Yeah, so, you know, however that works, you can do that now. By the way, Spotify apparently is, you know, um, throughout the podcast ecosystem, accounts for more than 20% of the podcast listening. Yes. Among crime writers on listeners. 3.9%. That's because, well... I'm just saying, that's a demographic thing, I guess. 73% of you, you're still using Apple Podcasts for your uh, preferred app. Yes. Just a little tidbit to drop on you. Yes, at Outside In, what? at New Hampshire Public Radio, yeah. it's like 30% Spotify. It depends on the age of people listening to podcasts. And I think we've all established that all of us here, old as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of old as fuck... Yeah, have- my birthday's coming up. Oh, Okay. Mine when? Too. when? September 16th. That's still oh a God. far way away. Come on. Yeah, when, but when I'm, are you I'm excited. <laughs> Mine is, uh, well, as people are hearing this, it's in two days. Oh. oh. Happy, happy birthday, Toby. Happy birthday, Toby. We're going to be parting it up in Denver. That's right. <laughs> Not we. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, in uh, Partners in Crime Media World, we have the new episode of These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast out. Uh, we're looking at a classic episode where the guest star is... Hayden Panettiere. And she's playing a teenage girl who goes from wearing the colored sex bracelets to dating guys to becoming a prostitute to becoming a child porn star. That's right. It, and like within six months, it's it's a accelerated program. So And she never goes to the Save the Cheerleader, Save the World part of her career. No, she, that happens later. That happens later. It's quite the episode. Six months ago, she was just another 15-year-old. Until she started hooking up with half of Queens. After that, it's no big deal to have sex for designer clothes or prostitute yourself in a hotel. She ends up as Trudy Strutt's porn star. She ends up dead on a roof. All right, so Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Audrey Smith and Angela Joyner. Bless you. Bless you, Angela. Bless you, Audrey. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who does. Thanks to those of you who don't and just listen to the business section anyway. We really appreciate you, and we really appreciate everyone who's out there right now. Kevin, does us in the business section? This ends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter, but exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. Okay, so we do get past the poltergeist slash telekinesis part of this story eventually. And we get to the real crime and the real story. So now we have this woman, Christina, who's been accused of killing her young child. And whether or not she did it is actually kind of suspect. So let's talk about that a little bit. So, Toby, there is a disconnect between what people who are fighting for Christina's innocence believe and what people in Christina's community and the people who prosecuted her and, you know, arrested her for this crime believe, right? Like, there's just no sense at all in her community that it could possibly have not been her. Right. So this is a little bit similar to the one we did, Stephenville, where she's an outsider who's coming to town in Georgia. She's she's a single mother, and then she's got this weird poltergeist thing, right? And she's in the Bible Belt. Uh, so I think there's just this, you know, there people are predisposed to distrust her. And she uh, has a relationship with this kid who was born and raised there, apparently by a family who everybody says is super respectable and they can't imagine him doing anything wrong. Um, <laughs> so when the when the child dies and and there's some there's no at the time significant proof that it was one or the other, the prosecutors and the police pick her rather than him because, and and somebody else can talk about why, but I think what's kind of interesting to me and which I don't feel like they really have the guts to really explore in this is that she's going to be facing the death penalty if she goes to trial and they lose. So her public defender basically is just like, you'll get life, but we'll save you. Right. You plead guilty. You'll get life, but you won't be executed. And then these people at Georgetown are like, that was the stupidest thing ever. You know, it's the stupidest plea we've ever seen. And to me, what the most interesting part of this whole thing is that you've got this prestigious law school and then you've got this like sort of rural Georgia county and you've got the people in Georgia clearly assume that she will be found guilty and executed if she doesn't plead. And you've got people in Georgetown who are sort of confident that they can find this evidence to to overturn this, that, that they can win a trial. And I thought that was the interesting thing, right? And mm-hmm. and they don't, I mean, you kind of see it, but there's heroes and villains 
Yeah. yeah, the way this thing is set These up. It's not, I'm not even sure it's. I'm not even sure it's law school. I think these are undergrads. Yeah, right? undergrads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, but it's a professor. It's a professor who's who's sort of running this right, whole thing. Right, right. And and there's this sort of sense of like I will say. I think that the Georgetown students and this class is very interesting. I think Marty Tankliff is a really interesting guy. I remember his case. I've talked to him on the Undisclosed podcast. It's all very well-meaning and it's all really good and stuff, right? And I just, I'll just say it. There is this sense of like privilege that comes from being able to sit in this setting and looking at these facts and these people from over here and making choices in the way to approach them and parachute into a community and approach it from that point of view. And you feel that very strongly when you follow these women around in this town, right? And that's the documentary that's missing here because it's like, you're not talking about people who are actually going to take this up as a case and take it to court. You're talking about women who are taking this up as an academic exercise and they're going to graduate college. That's it. Mm-hmm. And there's something there that really struck me that I'm like, there's an ethical question there that is not explored in this. Yeah. And it, it irritated me. Tell me why. They irritated me. Something that I learned through our trip in Georgia is that it is not easy work. Like, I think we we definitely made the most of the time that we had, but it was just like... We maybe would have been able to get some answers to questions that we just weren't really able to dig into. Again, I would obviously love to have more time. Well, as somebody that works in in the criminal defense world... I'm like, yes, okay, anytime you have somebody that's willing to put in effort to try to bring new attention to an old case, especially a case where you think there might be a wrongful conviction, I'm like, good for you, that's a lot of work. But I felt like there was just this disconnect, like some of the questioning, like I would watch them go in and I'm like, yay, they're doing this, this is so exciting. And I'm like, they're so out of touch because they would go in to sit down and talk to somebody And they really didn't have the legal background or the world experience background or anything really in my, you know, way, uh, just my impression watching them to really give this credibility in terms of knowing what they were doing. And I don't mean that like in a way to like slam them or, or like diminish their enthusiasm for this case or the three years of work they put in. I was just kind of like, oh, like here's this woman in prison who is so excited that somebody's finally taking on her case. And part of me is like, what's going to happen when they graduate and who's going to take on this case? And she's calling them all the time and all these things are happening. But I felt like even just the tone of the way that the students talked about the things they were doing in the case, there was not really, to me, like a realization of the ramifications of putting this new hope on this case with knowing that it might not go further. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's also no no, like sort of deeper discussion about like why women aren't found factually innocent. Like there's a reason why it's because there's no DNA involved in this case. Innocence projects don't take on a lot of cases with women because innocence projects usually take on cases where there's new evidence, new evidence, a.k.a. DNA. There's no not going to be any new evidence in this case. The evidence is all out there. And the D.A. decided she did it. <laughs> I mean, that's just what happened. Right. So and, and I mean, Kevin, you have some thoughts on just like the evidence itself, like you have you know, your own sort of take on the, the case itself. And I think it's important to talk about like the actual case. Yeah. Here. 
Look, I mean, it's clear that she was not a great mom, right? And we hear about, you know, sort of later on about her activities where she's, you know, maybe apparently doing sex work with the child around and things like that. You know, it's clear to me that David Heron delivered the fatal blow when Tina wasn't there. Uh, but I, I am struggling with the idea that she had no idea her daughter was being abused when the, there are so many old bruises and, you know, you're changing diapers. And, you know, if she could say, well, you know, I was aware, but I was fearful of David. I didn't know what to do. That might mitigate the circumstances. It might have lent a little credibility to what she was saying to prosecutors and police that might have looked at her role differently. I mean, I think she was guilty of endangering the child, but that is a far cry from the gas chamber. So I don't think she comes to it with clean hands, but I don't think she belongs in jail for as long as she had for what was, I mean, part of the reason why they went after her and why a jury would have convicted her likely because the juror said this in the Heron case was that because she's the mom. Yeah. I think and, I mean, there is some, there is some, you know, things to like, okay, you ought to, you know, be parental. You ought to take some parental responsibility, but this is beyond that, right? This is, you know, it isn't like you should take the fall for someone else's fatal blow. I think it's possible that she could have seen Andrews on her child and not, and not drawn the line to like yeah. straight up abuse. I, I do. Yeah, it is. Cause that happens. But then this is why the problem with her background was sort of like being, you know, having run this big long con about, oh, I'm I'm the telekinesis girl. She was a child. Girl. She, she was a, a child. But, she, but even but as an adult, her but Rebecca, con. as an adult, she still doesn't come clean on this, right. right? She still says, well, my mom made me pull down that lamp the one time she got caught. If she had said, look, I was lonely, I was troubled, this thing got me attention, it would build our confidence in her that maybe some of the things that she does say is truthful. You think so, she, do you think she still believes she built, she bent a million spoons or she still would say that she bent uh, a million spoons? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think she probably did, but I don't, did she do it with her mind? Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's just, no. it's difficult. She, I know she didn't. Yeah. You know, Toby, okay, sorry, okay. Toby, talk <laughs> about, sure, Toby, are you sure? Can we talk about the DA? I no, love that guy. I want, I want Toby to talk about the mics because yes, the, the, the people who like the two mics, the ones who don't know who did it, but Toby thoughts. I, yeah. It's uh, maybe they're edited to look like idiots, but this whole idea that they're like, well, I don't know who did it, but, uh, you know, she's the mom. So, you know, she's got responsibility for keeping her kids safe. So we, we charged her with the murder. I knew uh, some family. So I knew his brother and uh, his brother's wife real well, but that has nothing to do with the case. <laughs> She wasn't fucking there. Like, yeah. <laughs> like no one is disputing that she wasn't there. That's what's so wild about it. Yeah. So it, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you do with that? I guess like who looks at that? It's like, wow, that's some clever policing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought the DA was a little douchey, had a little more reasonable take on things. Not that I agree with him, but he at least was sort of forthright in what he was talking about. Like he was just very honest in a way that I think later they run into somebody else who's representing the County or the state or whatever, where I don't think he's being particularly honest, but um, I I thought he was, I thought he was interesting. I I just felt during, I guess the last episode or maybe the last half of the last episode, I just thought, you know, with all this stuff, they could have made a kind of, really interesting or subversive or sort of uh, undermining what we expect from these things. 
by showing that coming in as a, I'm going to save this person from this horrible injustice that was done and really interrogate whether what happened was an injustice or what happened was a clear eyed defense attorney who'd been there for a long time saying, this is what we have to do to keep you from being convicted and put to death because that is what's going to happen. And that's just knowledge of my community or whatever. I think if you had really looked at that dynamic a little more carefully, I think that would have been a pretty interesting show. Instead, this is like, you know, how many shows have we seen like this? She's wrongfully convicted and some people are trying to get her off. But beyond the poltergeist thing, I mean, the only thing I can think about about the poltergeist thing is it is a hook to bring people in because otherwise, I mean, which is not to denigrate her experience or whatever, but it's this is the kind of thing we've seen again and again and again. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I would have loved to have seen some questioning too, like the camera turned on the Georgetown students and saying like, how many domestic violence victims have you talked to before this case? How many, you know, how many times have you visited, you know, a rural community in the South and interviewed people involved in a case like that? The answer would be probably, I don't want to, I can't say for sure, like this is the first time. You know, it's funny because I had mixed feelings about what I was going to say about this coming into it. And the more I think about it, like all the material really is here to make something kind of fucking great. If it were rearranged and like with a different eye kind of put into it, like making a murderer inside out. Um, and you, you probably do have a woman in the middle here who should not be in prison. And it's just being mishandled now two ways, right? It's being mishandled by the people who put her there. And the innocence way that it's being done is being done like in such a superficial way that it's probably not going to fucking help her. It's really interesting, actually. Maybe the um, uh, the resentencing issue. I mean, that's certainly the only path she has. I don't think. Well, do you think that guy's going to actually do anything? Not when the cameras leave. I, yeah, I mean, I just like that guy was clearly like he was. He clearly liked that one girl because did you see how he was like smiling at her? He was like, she. He goes. I guess I'll take it. And then he kind of like smiled and she was like, and and I was like, oh my God, he's flirting with the students. And and he was, there was definitely, I was like, she needs to do an extra hair flip before she leaves. I think that would work. He was, he was definitely like, "Mm." that's not on her, by the way, that's on him. I'm not saying she needs to do an extra hair. I'm saying, I think he was paying attention to that. I do think one of the more interesting characters to me in this was the DA who was so forthcoming about why, this conviction happened. The old DA or the new, the current DA? The guy who was like, am I being a jerk? Do I sound like a hard ass? And I liked that he was like, I'm not going to listen to a bunch of fucking college students. Whatever he said, it wasn't that, but it was something to that effect. And then he gets in there and he's all nice to them. He's like, okay, maybe you've changed my mind. But (laughs) gave me something to think about. I think mainly this is a fact-driven request from what I'm gathering from y'all. So, you know, yeah, I, I can do that. I think that's a duty of mine. So, you know, I'll, I'll engage in a thorough review. And I was like, yeah, okay. I was like, I appreciated how blunt he was, but you know, yes, I think there's probably issues in this case, but like the thing that was, I think, super bad fact was that fucking creepy old dude videotaping himself with Mm. her having sex. And the little girl is just like wandering around and, and it was like, she needed money. So she's having sex with this creepy old dude, but that was a, First of all, why is he videotaping everything? And uh, I can tell I, you that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Toby coming with the captain obvious throughout the episode. I love it. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. But why is he? But, but why do we have it? That's the real question. Like, why isn't that in secret somewhere? Who had to walk, go through all of it? Oh my god, it's like listening to jail calls when people are having phone sex. No, thank you. So I just feel like there was a lot of information the about the case. <laughs> no, I can't talk about that. Just the fact that there was a lot of bad facts in this case that were sort of glossed over for the sake of we're going to, she's wrongfully convicted and we're going to overturn this and we're going to get somebody to re-examine in this case. The problem is those bad facts are still there and and they probably contributed to why she was convicted in the first place. Do you yep. know what I so, mean? Yep. So I guess two things. One is to be clear, I do not agree with that freaking DA about like anything. I just <laughs> thought that so he was willing to be so honest about his thought process in a form in which he, he must know that people are going to be like shaking their heads, like, like in disagreement. I thought it was like one of the best things about the show is because usually he's just not cagey. He's very forthcoming. This is not a beating that occurred on one day. And both of those people are responsible for that child being dead today. If you want to have tunnel vision, you do that. That's your job. It's not my job. Like, I get that that thing about her, the her doing the the uh, on camera uh, sex work stuff with her kid around, like, is probably a bad fact in front of the jury. But I think just in terms of her life, I mean, it's it's more I think it feels more of like evidence of of desperation. Yeah. And yes, it's they call it financial sex work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's, it's not horrible. evidence of murder. But it, but it's not going to like I, I assume that in front of a jury in that location, you tromp that out there. It's going to be like, yeah, it's just like she's just morally like the kind of person who would do this is the same kind of person who would who would, exactly. who would kill their child. And that's what the defense attorney who uh, he knew it, who did the plea deal did. He's just like, this is how I save your life. I liked that guy, too. I liked when he was like, you can come down here and try a case. <laughs> Again, I think it's, I, I liked him as a voice on this show. I don't think I would really like agree with almost anything he said ever in no. his entire life. Uh, but, but it was. It was illuminating. Yeah. I mean, they, they just were, were honest, despite the fact they knew they were going to be portrayed as villains, I guess. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Demons and Saviors. Lara Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Demons and Saviors. Well, you know, going into this episode, I thought I was going to be like maybe a mild thumbs up just because of the fact that I liked the part 
of this about, oh, here's this college, you know, clinic for students to examine potential wrongful convictions. And I always like seeing those sort of initiatives. But this three episode documentary was so disjointed to me. I think there are some interesting stories within this case and within these students reexamining an old case and within the conviction of this woman and her past. But unfortunately, the presentation and the way that the story was told in this was done in a way that really just narratively for me didn't work in terms of compelling storytelling and left me feeling frustrated more than fired up. And I'm a defense investigator. I should be fired up when I watch something like this. And I was just fired up about the order that it was told in, not the story. So that's that. Toby Bob. Yeah, my first note on on this uh, was episode one is a mess. And then I scribbled out episode one and just wrote this whole series. The material is here for something that's complicated and sort of challenging to a lot of the things that we think about when we think about true crime and the way true crime is sort of presented. Instead of doing that, they've just sort of served up pretty by the numbers true crime thing, but not in a way that that makes a whole lot of logical sense in the way it's set up. And I think really has to overlook a bunch again, a bunch of things that could have been interesting in order to get to this fairly simple story that they want to tell. And it's a shame because in the end of it, it just doesn't feel like anything different or unusual when it could have been. So I'm a thumbs down. I really, you know, every moment where I thought maybe things would be taking a turn for the better or more interesting, they quickly turned back to the uh, boring and hard to understand. So uh, thumbs down. Kevin Flynn. I'm going to go thumbs sideways. That's the nicest thing I can say about it. You know, I think we have seen true crime crossover genre things. We've seen true crime and politics, true crime and sports, true crime in Hollywood, true crime in rock music, different things like this. True crime paranormal. Okay, we'll give it a swing. I just feel like they had a lot of elements here of something that actually wasn't bad. And I think even despite itself, there are times that stuff came up and it was interesting and perhaps compelling. And it's, you know, a, a case where you definitely can argue, well, did she give the f- fatal blow? If she didn't, how responsible is she? Should she be there for 30 years uh, or plus for the rest of her life? You know, there are things here, but it just was put together so poorly that it's almost like they, you know, went into a, a whiteboard meeting and just pulled all the the index cards off and just rearranged them, uh, or put them in a. They went in a chronological order when it really needed to be told in a, a different narrative way. I really thought this was going to be super bad, and we would be laughing at it manslaughter style. I was surprised at points when there was like things here that you know seemed like okay, I see why they wanted to do this, but I also see why. Probably some network executive said, no, lean hard on the poltergeist stuff because that's what's going to draw in an audience. So uh, best I can say is sideways. So I think that uh, Mark Howard and Marty Tankliff co-teaching the class at Georgetown has been covered in the media. It's super interesting. Marty Tankliff went to prison. His best friend, Mark Howard, said that he knew since he was three. They were supposed to graduate high school together. Marty Tankliff ended up going to prison for murdering his parents he eventually ended up getting out because his friend Mark Howard became a lawyer. And then it's a whole thing. Now they're co-teaching this class together at Georgetown. 
and they're studying cases, right? Their class could actually like spin off a bunch of like, it could be like along the lines of Philly DA, right? It could be like a PBS series where they like show a bunch of cases that the class is studying, right? It is so unfortunate that this is the first documentary that's being made from a case being done by students in this class. It really is because it was just done in such a horrible like presentation. And I just think that it was approached in such a way that it didn't do credit to the work the class is striving to do. And the things that I said about the students in the class were said because of the way the students were shown in this thing, not because of the way the students probably actually are. It just really bums me out because when I was watching this with you, Kevin, I was just like, there's, I, I was like not, not enjoying watching it after episode one. There's a lot of interesting things in it. I can't ultimately recommend it, though, because it was just so botched and it just bums me out so much because it could have been so good. There's interesting stuff here and it could have been subversive and it could have been cool and it just was a mess. So ultimately, I'm thumbs down. That being said, I really do think there's material here and I think there's more material to come out of the work being done in that class with these undergraduates who are not like actually going to probably ever get anybody out of prison because they're examining issues about why certain exonerations can't happen uh, and namely in this one, the one this reason this one is interesting is because it's a woman and women's cases don't go to innocence projects. And there's a fucking reason for that. So anyway, there's material here. It wasn't brought to bear. That's why I'm giving it a thumbs down. Also, because it's a disaster. But there's stuff here that is not uninteresting. So that's it for me. Thumbs down for Demons and Saviors. All right. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. A little something I like to call. The crime of the week. Crime of the week. It was a series of unfortunate events for a Texas woman mowing the lawn. Peggy Jones was minding her own goddamn business when a snake fell from the sky and landed on her arm. The serpent wrapped itself around her arm and started biting her. Just as she thought the situation couldn't get more dire, a hawk swooped in and tried to rip the snake from her arm. Officials think the bird was overhead when its next meal slithered from its talons and fell onto Jones, so the raptor went after it. What happened next was a nightmarish scene of fangs and feathers, which took the screams up to another level. Jones says it took four attempts for the hawk to wrest the striking snake from her forearm and fly off for good. The two-pronged attack left her bloody, bruised, and bit, but not seriously injured. It also gave birth to the first horrifying case of ophidio or thinophobia. Panel, how unlucky can one person get? What is the next one, two series of unfortunate events that we'll hear about? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Honestly, you really can't top this one. Um, my friends and I were out at dinner last week and uh, Chocolate Ann was like, girls, have you seen this story? And I'm like, I, I, this is like my worst nightmare come true. And I, I can't imagine anything worse than a snake coming and landing on my arm. And if you saw the pictures of this lady's arm, oh, my God. Also, I watched a video of her giving an interview and said she said she prayed to God. She prayed to God and God delivered the hawk to her to save her life. So I, you can't top this. This is like a horror movie in real life, people. That, you mean God delivered the hawk that had just actually dropped the fucking snake on her? Yeah, the hawk saved her. I don't no, she Peggy said that's what she said. how God works. Peggy, Peggy was like, I prayed to God and God brought the hawk to save me. Like, okay, Peggy, but 
What a fucking nightmare. Do we need to point out that your friend Chocolate Anne is a chocolatier? Yeah. And that's why she has that name? Yeah, we probably should. Toby Ball, <laughs> what do you think is the next one, two series of unfortunate events we'll hear about? Oh, I was just like, I was, you know, turning back the clock to when, uh, you know, I'd be carrying my big thing of chocolate and I'd run into somebody who's carrying their <laughs> vat of peanut butter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a new flavor was discovered. I think there's something I saw in The Simpsons. It'd be like falling through a razor blade factory and then falling through a lemon juice factory. <laughs> I was thinking like, you know, sometimes you like breathe in a fly. Yeah. What if then you breathe in a spider after breathing in the fly? Oh. Or what if you ate a turducken and then had like turdiarrhea? Turdiarrhea. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. What if the uh, white paint falls down the back of the black cat and then Peppy Le Pew jumps out. That's true. All right, that's going to do it for us. Before we go, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, We have some new animals joining the Crime Writers on family. We do. Now, anytime an animal joins the family of Toby Ball, we get a lot of attention. Does an attention. angel ring its bell or whatever? Yes. Something like that. I mean, we had Clancy the puppy. Clancy, very, very popular. A hawk a snake. The hawk gets a snake, Clancy the puppy. And now we have Lucifer and Kimchi. Nice. Toby, can you tell us about them? Uh, yeah, Lucifer goes by Louie, apparently. Uh, my Probably son just moved into a, uh, a, a new apartment with a buddy of his from high school. And the buddy uh, has just adopted these two kittens named Louie and Kimchi. Kimchi is an orange cat is a little <gasps> bit smaller and yes. lucifer uh or louis is all black uh we actually met them last weekend they were very fun uh did a lot of running around and, and playing with different things and then went back into their room and ate um <laughs> perfect so, yeah so that sounds that's, like a good night one two punch so that's the deal that's uh louis and kimchi all right, so Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and pitch any kind of animal to be the crime writers on Cat of the Week. How can they find you online? Well, you know I prefer cats and kittens, but nope. I will take other animals, but no snakes, at Laura Bricker on Twitter. What about you, Toby? How can you be found just in case you happen to post any photos of these two kittens? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, what about you? How can you be found? At Kevin P. Flynn. If you want to follow me anywhere and everywhere on all the social media sites, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Follow the show on Twitter and everywhere else at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to follow our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On group. Support a teacher. Join our group. Just go to our regular old page. I said it at the top of the show. Join our group. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You can hear it on Spotify now. You'll also get the Crime Writers on After Show, Mary with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. He's sitting right next to me. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement where ghosts also throw lamps and telephones around, but only when no one is looking. What was that? On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. The problem is when it when I'm not paying attention and I just shut it fast and it doesn't shut all the way, there's like enough of a crack <clears throat> that the cats can try to push it open to escape. And that is why it is problematic. Yeah, you don't want uh, cats taking advantage of your crack. <laughs> you see? <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.